Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples for God's glory. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Tomorrow starts uh, 40 days of prayer. And if you saw this prayer guide out there, uh, these are available for you, one per person, as many people as you will use them. For 40 days, we're going to all focus on some of the same things together. From the book of Colossians, the theme is rooted in prayer. And the goal, what we're going to try to do is to really learn how to pray biblically by looking through the book of Colossians, and it starts tomorrow. And I want to just give you an idea of what you might see in this book. You'll see early in the book that um, a link to our podcast, and you can get this on our website. So uh, every week we're dropping a podcast. So today at 5 o'clock, a podcast will drop, and I'll be interviewing, in this case, uh, Steve Thompson wrote for the first week of prayer, uh, and Amy Granada wrote children and family discipleship material. So I'm interviewing Amy and Steve on that podcast, just 10 or 12 minutes. We'll have one of those every Sunday night, so we want you to take advantage of that. Week one, starting tomorrow, will be Colossians 1, 1 to 14. You can walk through uh, that, that passage of Scripture, and you see at the bottom there on the screen that The focus will be praying for believers to live worthy and God-pleasing lives. We'll be focusing on that all week long. And it's very easy for us to pray for a lot of different things. We often don't pray those types of things. And so for six weeks, we're going to learn how to pray the things that are talked about in Scripture. And the way the book is set up, um, there's a memory verse every week. Um, so all week long, hopefully you can read it, you can write it. There's a coloring sheet for it if you can color it. There is a song of the week every single week, and there's a QR code. So like it, at home, maybe you can listen to it on your phone, or if your family's going to gather together, you can uh, you know read the scripture and, and listen to the song and pray together. Uh, and then next Sunday... Uh, after studying these things all week long, uh, we'll sing that song. There's also a family discipleship page every single week, and that gives you just some tips, some ideas, some things to do uh, as a family to tie in with that theme. The left side of each page is a Bible study, and it's basically uh, passages that we'll be covering and questions, and you can work through it on your own. You can work through it with your family. A lot of the small groups will work through them together. And then the right-hand side of the page uh, will look like this. There'll be, uh, how do you pray in light of what you just studied? So for many, this might be new. You study the Bible, which is great, but now you also pray on the basis of it, and we're going to help you do that. And You'll see, as on this page, there will be some harvesters listed, some of our missionaries listed, people you can pray for, and a, and a church-wide request that we'll pray for every day. At the end of the week, there's a journal page. So maybe you just want to 
write out your own notes. Um, and at the very back, there is an answer key. <laughs> and I mentioned it at the outset because it has happened in the past that people have gone well into the 40 days and then somehow discovered, oh, there's an answer key back there. <laughs> we put it at the back. So you might want to use it, you might not, but it is helpful after you've worked through the material yourself to take a look at what the author was intending there with with the questions. This you can do on your own, you can do in your families, but there are things that we will do together during these 40 days. Groups, if you're in a group, uh, your group will be praying together, and many of the groups, like I said, will be actually using these very topics or, or at least working them in. There are groups for ladies. Uh, there are groups for men. There's a prayer breakfast and, and different things. And Corey, who just made the announcement a minute ago, you can see him. If you want to get in a group during the 40 days, uh, talk to him. But then there are some things that we all do as a whole church, And one of them is every Sunday morning at 930, we pray together right here in this room. And I invite you to be a part of that. Um, That's a great time. It's 45 minutes of prayer and worship to prepare us for this worship service. On Thursdays, we pray together virtually. There's a link for that on our website. If you, for 30 minutes, from 730 to 8, if you want to just log on there, we use Microsoft Teams and people get a chance to pray together. And then ultimately... At the end of this emphasis in February, we're going to be doing a 24-hour prayer vigil. Uh, It'll start at 2 o'clock on Friday in this room, which will look totally different. There'll be prayer stations all set up, and it'll go to 2 o'clock on Saturday, and you'll hear more about that as we go along. So we are really excited about Rooted in Prayer. All right, so Ben, I'm going to try with my take this away, and then if I need to hold it, I'll hold it, but let's see if we've, um, if it's decided to cooperate. Corey just said he should have just preached this morning. That's what. Check, check. Hey. My mic and my pack. <laughs> oh, while we're doing this, if you want to find Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that would be great. So, as I mentioned, our goal this year is to learn how to pray biblically from the book of Colossians. And today, I I, want to help equip you and motivate you to pray. 
But the way that I'm going to do it is, might be a little bit different. I'm not going to talk about prayer. I today, from the Scripture, want to talk about the glory, the majesty, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And then I think we'll see how that all pulls together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Actually, we're going to go all the way to verse 23, and we're going to read this passage together. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word? The Son is the invisible image of God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God. And were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Now, the context of this passage that we just read, it's not the very first verse in Colossians. You might be thinking, hey, we're starting a new series. Why didn't we start at 1-1? Well, we're going to start at 1-1 tomorrow. In the first 14 verses of Colossians, the, the writer, the apostle Paul, does his pretty typical thing in letters. He thanks uh, he gives thanks to God and tells the Colossians about that, and he prays for them, and he tells them how he prays for them specifically. That's what we'll be studying this coming week. And then right after giving those introductory remarks, in verse 15, boom, he dives right in 
to the major theme of Colossians, and that is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is above all, is superior to all. Now, in their day in Colossae, the city of Colossae, um, which is modern-day Turkey, there, there were a lot of competing ideas about divinity. And so we'll call it the Colossian heresy. And as we go through the series, I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit more. But basically, the, the, the primary component, it came down to they believed that there were human beings down at the bottom, as you can see, in, pictured. And then at the top, there was God. And there were these angelic kind of emanations along the way between humans and God, and that Jesus was just way up there near the top, (laughs) but not God. That Jesus wasn't God because he was, he had flesh, and for them that was a bad thing. And so this was the view that was very prevalent in the culture and society of the original readers. Now, what about us today? Do in our world, do we encounter any false views about who Jesus Christ is, about who God is? Well, there are all kinds of religions out there that have views about Jesus and views about God. There's Hinduism with 30,000 gods and uh, Islam and Buddhism and Christianity is the only one that says Jesus was not just a good person, a good teacher, moral, religious, but Jesus is God. And besides these religions, think about our culture and think about the view towards truth. I mean, mostly our culture doesn't even believe in absolute truth anymore. That, you know, your truth is kind of what you believe, what you want to believe. So what it, if you want to believe something about Jesus, fine. If, if you want to believe something about this, fine. If you want to identify as this, fine. If you want to, and there's no absolute standard about who God really is or does it even matter. So we live in a world in which we need the message of Colossians badly, maybe more badly than we realize that you could summarize what's happening in the first five verses of this passage as it talks about Christ's supremacy. He's supreme over creation, verses 15 to 17. He is supreme over the church, and he is supreme over everything in the last three verses. And what we're going to do today is we're going to try to realize what happens when we grasp the supremacy of Christ. And also, when we grasp our position in him. That's the way this passage flows. The first five verses talk about the supremacy of Christ. The next three verses talk about our position in him. So let's try to grasp it. Let's focus on that. Let's focus on who he is. And let's focus on who we are. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up with an application. So let's talk about the supremacy of Christ. Three statements are made in these three sections, many sections of verses 15 to 20. And the first one is this, as firstborn, he is supreme over creation. He is an exact, visible representation of God. Verse 15, the son is the image, 
of the invisible God. And just think about that for a second. No one has ever seen God. God is invisible. No one with their physical eyes can see God, and yet God decided that he wanted to show us what he looked like. Now, in the Old Testament, he appeared in the tabernacle and in the the temple to reveal himself at one level to, to humanity, but now in the New Testament, he has said, I am going to reveal myself by becoming human. I am going to retain my full divinity, but at the same time, I am going to send my son to live. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, if you read that God is holy, and you want to know, what does that look like? Well, just look at the life of Jesus. In the Old Testament, you also read that God is a a God of forgiveness and love. Well, how do we know what that looks like today? Well, just look at Jesus. Look how Jesus interacted with people and forgave people and invited the outcasts to be a part of his family. Jesus is an exact representation. And then, as the passage, the verse continues, he created and outranks everything in creation. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, the word firstborn can mean a couple different things. We often in English refer it, uh, or by using it, we're referring to the very first child that's born, right? My firstborn, you might say. And it, it can mean that. And it can mean that even in the Bible. It's used that way in Luke chapter 2. But there's another meaning that's more relevant to this context, and Paul does not use it in this context of that. And that word for firstborn, firstborn, or the emphasis of firstborn is the one that's preeminent, the one that's above all, the one that's dominant over, that has superiority over, the one that is supreme. This is the way it's used, for instance, in Psalm 89, 27, in talking about the Davidic king and his line. He talked about him, says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses are sincere, passionate people who really want to talk to you about a God. They might have knocked on your door sometime and attempted to talk to you about God. Many things they believe are true. But one thing they believe is very dangerous. They believe that Jesus Christ is not fully God. That Jesus is not equal to God the Father. That he's lesser. And in fact, Colossians 1 is one of the places that they will go to to support their false position. They'll say, see, Jesus is the firstborn. That means God created him. And that makes him lesser than God the Father. Have you ever heard this? Well, what do we want to do? I I hope they come to Colossians 1 and talk to me. (laughs) Because context is the key for understanding any literature properly, right? What comes before, what comes after it, how the words, the the paragraphs shape themselves. 
how they relate to each other. So what's happening in Colossians chapter one? He says Jesus is the firstborn. We know it can mean a couple of different things. So how do we know exactly what it does mean? Well, just keep reading. Look at the very next word in verse 16. For that word explains what he's talking about. Why can he say Jesus is the firstborn? And what is meant by saying Jesus is the firstborn? For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Why does Jesus outrank everything and everyone in creation because he created all. All that we can see, all human beings, but also all these layers and levels of angelic beings that are talked about here. It all exists for him. Does anybody want to say amen? Amen. All right. Verse 17. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The word hold together seems to indicate that everything has its existence in Christ. He is the rationale, the rhyme, the reason for the universe. As David Garland, one commentator says, the universe is not self-sufficient, nor are individuals no matter how much they may deceive themselves into thinking they are. Even those who do not acknowledge Christ's reign and those who actively oppose him are entirely dependent on him. Do you know if you woke up this morning and you're here, there's only one reason. It's not because you're healthy, you exercise, you eat well, all all those things are good. You're here because God wants you to be here. You're here because God gave you life and breath and gives you life and breath. He is before all things. In fact, our whole universe is only holding together because of him. So in a computer, like you think about the operating system that holds everything together, right? A lot of different parts of a computer, but the operating system schedules the processes and establishes establishes the priorities, what should happen when, and and it orders everything, and it allows everything to happen. And if you have a computer and you don't have an operating system, you can have the mouse and the keyboard and the screen, and you can have everything, but you'll have nothing. You have to have something that holds everything together. It's And on the basis of this passage, I think it's legitimate to compare Jesus Christ and the universe as, as if he's the operating system of the universe. It all holds together in him. Without it, they're just buttons and screen and software, but no cohesion. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And science is very, very valuable, especially true science and unbiased science. But science can only observe and describe and analyze what it sees. Science cannot answer the question, why? Why are we here? 
why is there a world? Why do I have the ability to think and love and live? So I'll, I'll put up a picture here. So think about, think about a pool table. Think about a billiard table. And so if you take the cue stick and you hit the cue ball and it rolls and hits another ball, it's going to create a reaction, right? And there, science can observe that, right? Science, science can measure how fast it goes and the direction and this and that and the other. But the answer for why that motion is happening has to come outside the motion, right? It comes from the person who initiated it. And that's who Jesus is. He initiated everything. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So in other words, if we want to find out our purpose, if we want to find out why creation is here, we have to look outside of creation. And we look to Christ who has a purpose. God has a purpose and he's going to accomplish it. Don't you want to be a part of his purpose in your life? Jesus is supreme over creation. Now, the next verse demonstrates how the one who was supreme over creation became supreme over the church. As head, he is supreme over the church. He brought the church into being and he is the source of its vitality. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church. Now, when you hear the word head, you might think of things like, a head football coach or a head, head of state, head of a corporation. But I want you to think about how it's being used here. Think about the head that's on top of your body. Okay? This is the head that is on a body. That's the analogy. Now think about how good would your body be if you didn't have a head? I mean... The head holds everything, right? Your mouth, your eyes, and most importantly, your brain. Your brain and the nervous system work together to give commands and to, for your body to do this and that and the other. You have to have a head. And the head is over the body. The head is directing the body. But the head is also giving life and vitality. And the word head in the scripture in the New Testament can mean source or origin. So it indicates both authority over, but it also indicates the life giver, the source of, of vitality. Jesus Christ is the source of the church. He gives life to the church. The church cannot function without him. That is why he is supreme in the church. And it continues. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Ah, we get the word firstborn again. Now, what does it mean this time? <laughs> well, it still carries the, the, the connotation of superiority, but it also has some time element now in this part of the context, because he was the firstborn out of the dead. Now, there were people that were raised in the Old Testament, but raising themselves. He is the firstborn. In other words, he's the first in a series of succession. When Jesus rose from the dead, 
that set in motion a principle that all of his followers one day are also going to rise from the dead. In that sense, he is the firstborn, the first in the sequence. Now, Jesus will indeed have supremacy over his band of followers that we call the church. But it's more than just the church. Notice the end of the verse there, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. It's universal supremacy. Now, some of you might ask, you might think this would be a legitimate question. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus already have, according to the passage, didn't he already have supremacy over creation? I mean, he created it and he had supremacy. Why would it take his resurrection to establish supremacy over everything? And so the truth of the matter is this, although Jesus by right was supreme over creation, it was, he was not exercising full supremacy until something happened. N.T. Wright summarizes it well when he says, though Lord by right, he must become Lord in fact by defeating sin and death. And that is exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay for sins. He was buried and he defeated death. He overcame death. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So he had supremacy, and yet this was his proof. This was his demonstration. And this is when the moment in which he said, I am going to begin really demonstrating full supremacy. And ultimately, when he comes back, when he sets up his kingdom, that's when we will really see Christ full supremacy. Now, sometimes we use the word supremacy in our language for like limited areas, limited scope, right? We might use it in the world of sports or business or finance. We might talk about a company being dominant or supreme over others. We might talk about a, uh, a, a football team being uh, a dynasty, being supreme over others or uh, a financial person or, or company. And yet, even in all of those areas, which are piddly compared to Jesus, it's one limited area they're supreme over. Okay, granted, that football team or that, that investment firm, they might be supreme in their area, but look what the passage says, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Jesus Christ is ruling the church now. He owns the right to rule the universe. We're just living in kind of an in-between time in which he's given human beings a free will and the opportunity to make decisions. But one day, he is going to exercise his loving, powerful rule, and he's not going to take a vote. 
he's going to say, this is it. That's where Paul takes the passage as he explains in the next couple of verses why Christ is Lord of creation and Lord of the church. So it says, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now it's going to talk about how he is the fullness of God and how he reconciles or brings people back to God. Verse 19 talks about what we call the incarnation. This is how God lives in Jesus. That's what we mean when you hear that word incarnation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That is God manifesting himself in the flesh. That is God choosing to live in the person of Jesus. Fully God, fully human. The fullness of God lives in Jesus. Jesus lives in heaven right now. But if he were to appear, if he were to walk through those doors right here, you know what? I believe every one of us would be flat on the floor on our face before him. He's not somebody to trifle with. It's the fullness of God. And then there's reconciliation. This is what God does through him. Look what verse 20 says. Through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you know right now creation is out of whack? It's fallen. There are wars, there are earthquakes, there are tornadoes, there are hurricanes, there are there's death, there are severe illnesses. Creation is just out of whack. And that's because God created a perfect world and sin came into the world. And the world now is under the curse. The world, in terms of people, all people by nature are separated from God. And of course, even creation is not functioning perfectly as as it could under the rule of Christ. So there's, there's separation, and there needs to be reconciliation. When two people get mad at each other, maybe they're good friends, they get mad at each other, and they don't talk to each other for a while, you might say, oh, well, did you know that so-and-so got reconciled to, to so-and-so? In other words, they, they made up with each other, they asked each other they were sorry, and they started over or something. So it's when you bring things back together. That's what God did through Jesus. And how did he do it? He did it through his blood shed on the cross. We were enemies of God by, because of our sin and our rebellion. And God reconciled us. That is the supremacy of Christ. Verses 15 to 20. It's an amazing description. I I feel like we've really rushed through it. There's so much there. But now, let's turn our thoughts a little bit. We need to grasp how supreme He is. But we also need to grasp, if you're a Christian, 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, if you've owned up to your sin and your wrong and you've called on Christ and totally depended on him in faith to be your Lord and Savior and to give your life to him, if you're a Christian, if you're his follower, you have an amazing position. And the world beats you down and maybe you beat yourself down And maybe the remarks of others have beaten you down. But let's learn who we are in Christ. These verses explain how God changes us and he uses a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. So as we go through it, identify if you're in the past, the present, well, I started to say, or the future. Nobody's in the future yet. Identify if you're in the the past or the present. The past is this. You were alienated and enemies, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Colossians was written to those whom God had already changed. They were believers in Jesus. And Paul reminds them there was a past Before you were a Christian, you were alienated. You were God's enemy. People apart from Jesus Christ are not okay. Look at the language he uses to describe what a person is like before they are converted to Christ. Alienated from God, that implies loneliness and isolation and a profound sense of not belonging. This is the problem of humanity. And people try all kind of things to fill those gaps. We have worshipped false gods and become alienated from the true God. And that's true whether it's a a person in the third world worshiping worshiping the spirit of their ancestors or a 25-year-old in Charlotte who's worshiping the false gods of money, power, success, and fame. We've become slaves to sin. We are enemies, it says, in your minds. Now, Let's understand this correctly. This is not saying that the hostility is only a mental thing. It's not only intellectual. Thoughts and behaviors are linked. In fact, the philosopher John Locke in the 17th century said, I've always thought that the actions of men are the best interpreters of their thoughts. So without and before Christ, we are hostile to God in our minds, and it results in actions that don't please him. But maybe more importantly, God is also hostile towards us. That's what the Bible teaches. God does not view us as his friends when we are in that state. He loves us as created beings, but we are not close to him or reconciled to him. We are his enemies. Think about Adam and Eve. God gave them a perfect environment gave them everything they ever needed, gave them one command, one thing to avoid. They sinned, they did wrong, they chose what they wanted. And when they deliberately sinned by disobeying God, what did God do? Did God go over and wring his hands and say, oh, I wish they wouldn't have done that? Did God act like a parent who's trying to beg their toddler to comply? No. God punished them. God separated them. God forced them out of the garden, out of that perfect environment. And this 
separation from God passed to all of us. That's our past. If you're a Christian, that's your past today. Now, you might not have robbed a bank or committed murder or done the things that we would look at, but even if you were a good little church person, this describes you and me before Christ, alienated from God. Now, that's kind of gloomy, right? Happy New Year, right? But the good news is it doesn't stay there. <laughs> that was the past. What, what is the present? The present is reconciliation and a new standing. Verse 22. But now. But now. <laughs> I love those two words. Read them out loud with me, those two words. But now. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God has won us back. God has brought us back. God has reconciled the hostility. Biblically, being reconciled is being changed from being separated from Him to becoming in a friendship relationship, a family relationship with Him. It's the act that brings the end to the estrangement that we all experienced. And how did God do that? Did He wave a magic wand? Did He say, yeah, let's just forgive all those people? No. Look what it says. By Christ's physical body through death. It took the death of Jesus to do that. And that's why we sing about Jesus and His cross. That's why we worship Him. That's why we thank Him. Because by doing that, we can now be in a totally different place. This is so much more than turning over a new leaf or joining a church or making New Year's resolution. This is being reconciled to God. And look at the standing he gives us in the second half of verse 22. We are holy in his sight. He's going to present us holy in his sight. We're no longer sinful enemies. We are without blemish. Almost certainly that's an allusion to the Old Testament sacrifices where the animals were brought in to be sacrificed. They had to be without blemish and the offerer, the worshiper would, would put his hand on that animal hoping that unblemishedness would transfer over to him. But now through Christ's sacrifice, that faint hope has become a reality. We now are without blemish. I have a feeling you think you know your blemishes. Your children probably remind you of them, or your parents remind you of them, or your spouse reminds you of them. But what does God say about them? If you're a Christian, if you've been reconciled to God, you're holy in His sight, and you're without blemish. You're free from accusation. This takes us to the court of law. When believers are bought before 
the judgment seat of Christ, nobody's going to be able to accuse them. I don't know if this is true. I read about it a long time ago. I don't have names. I, I read it as if it were a true story. But I'm going to tell you, the best I know it's true, a man in England many years ago, before email and text and all that, he owned a Rolls Royce and he wanted to come to, he was coming to the United States for several months. And he actually had his car shipped over to the United States. I don't think this guy was hurting for money. And he got over here and the car broke down. The car started to have mechanical problems. So he contacted back in England he contacted them and said, look, I have this problem. And they said, don't worry. We will put a mechanic on the plane with the parts, fly him over there and make the repairs, which they did. And the rest of his time, he, the car was fine. When it was time for him to go back to England, they shipped the car back. About a year later, after getting back, he realized he never got a bill. He never got a bill from them. And so he contacted and wrote them a letter. And he said, look, in my, uh, in, in my uh, files, I, I don't have a bill. I'll be happy to pay you for your efforts at fixing my car. And he got a letter back from them that said this. In the files at the headquarters of Rolls-Royce, there's no such account saying anything has ever been wrong with a Rolls-Royce anywhere that you speak of. That is similar in some ways to what God has accomplished for us spiritually. Those that depend completely on him for salvation and forgiveness, he repairs us and then when we send off and ask for the bill, we get three words back or three phrases back. Holy in my sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Well, what's the future look like? Well, it's conditional on continuing to believe. Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. If provides a warning to the first readers at Colossae, those who professed faith in Jesus, and to us today who profess faith in Jesus. If we're going to be free from blame, if we're going to be holy, we must continue doing something. We can't be nonchalant about our profession of faith in Jesus. We can't believe that somehow there are other avenues to God. Now, how do you reconcile the doctrine of, the biblical doctrine of eternal security, which means once a person is truly saved, they are permanently and eternally saved? That's what the Bible teaches. How do you reconcile this with a warning like this? The truth is there are two aspects to the story. 1 Peter 1, 5 says we're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Matthew 24 says he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So the promise of blamelessness is conditional. If some of these who had professed faith in Jesus turned away from it, what it demonstrated is they were never really saved to begin with. We just went through Hebrews for nine months 
And we saw that over and over with the warnings in Hebrews. True believers persevere in saving faith. Dependence on Jesus Christ. When God brings salvation to someone, He sends His Holy Spirit to live in them, and forever they will persevere. But unfortunately, some people just make a profession of that faith without really having saving faith. And then the second half of verse 23 says, this is the gospel message that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. At that time, that gospel had gone out to all the creatures there. And yet now it reminds us of what our job as a church is, of the church is, is to get the gospel to every creature that's alive in our world. So what happens when we grasp the supremacy of Christ and our position in Him? I, I would just say it simply. Our lives and our prayers change drastically. If you will focus on who Jesus is, how awesome and majestic He is, and what He has made you, that'll change your life. That'll change your prayers. That's why I wanted to start here. This is so central to Colossians. This theme, we're going to see it fleshed out over and over and over again in all of the weeks that we go through this. Let me just close by asking you three questions. The first one is this. How are you yielding to his supremacy in your life? How are you yielding to his supremacy? The second question is, doesn't grasping who he is make you want to pray? You know, when we realize what a majestic person he is, the thought of spending time with him in his word and talking to him changes from just something on our to-do list or just a good thing to do to something that we really want to do. And then thirdly, are you praying from your position in Christ or are you trying to attain it? If you're a believer, you have a position in Christ. Pray from that position. And over the next 40 days, let's let's learn what that means. Let's learn what that looks like. When we grasp the supremacy of Christ and our position in Him, our lives and prayers change drastically. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Thanks again for joining us from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our church, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.